it's all on the table. You know, I, I'm a believer in cross-examination as a way of getting to the truth. There's a reason Socrates did it. There's a reason courts do it. And here you had the most powerful people, the people at the very heart of this situation, put under the lens of cross-examination by adverse parties like the Justice Center who wanted to show that they didn't need to do what they did. And that's there for everyone to see. You're listening to The Corbett Report. Welcome back, friends. Welcome back. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com. It is December of 2022, December 5th in the in Canada, um, and December 6th here in Japan, to be precise, where I am going to be talking to two representatives of the JCCF, the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, that I am sure my well-versed listeners will already know from my conversation back in February of 2021 with John Carpe on Canadian Government Delays Mandatory Traveler Quarantine from the Solutions Watch series. If you don't recall that, you might want to check that out. The link will be in the show notes, as well as the link to jccf.ca, where you can learn more about the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms and what it is involved in these days. Today we're going to be talking to uh, Rob Kittredge and Adam Keir of the JCCF. So first of all, guys, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having us. Thank you. All right, let's just start with some general background about yourselves, how you came to be involved with the JCCF and what kind of work you do for them. Sure. Um, Well, the JCCF is a a charitable organization that does uh, charter of rights litigation, basically defending uh, liberty of Canadians through litigation, which is kind of a rare thing for a charity to do. There's not many people doing the kind of work that we do. Um, and uh, we, we basically do civil liberties litigation pro bono for, uh, for clients that we select based on, you know, how much impact they would have on other the rights of other Canadians and that sort of thing. I was, uh, I guess I'm a lawyer. I was called to the bar in 2007, and I've been an intellectual property lawyer for most of my career, um, but got a little tired of uh, watching uh, copyright get eaten away and eaten away and eaten away by uh, secret trade treaties that made my work uh, less and less pleasant as time went by. And uh, the few statutes that uh, that I worked with, you know, becoming less user friendly. Uh, I had gotten into it as an open source kind of guy. Uh, so I was looking for a change in uh, direction. Uh, and I, I had watched the Justice Center do a couple of uh, a couple of cases that the, the Justice Center was involved with and contacted them about a year and a half ago. And uh, fortunately, they were hiring. And, and here we are. Awesome. Rob, I, I should have you on to talk about IP at some point. But <laughs> Adam, sure. how about yourself? Uh, yeah, so I came from a uh, criminal law background. I used to be a prosecutor. Uh, I left the government right around the time the vaccine mandates were coming in in response to that. Uh, and I basically found the JCCF almost by, well, uh, I, I just figured someone must be doing this work. So I, I kind of had it in the back of my head that, oh, I'm sure there's lawyers on this, lawyers on this. Uh, so I actually looked up who those lawyers were. I found the Justice Center, uh, and I've been with them for a little bit over a year now. Excellent. Well, it's good to have you guys here to talk about, I, I hope people understand what we're going to be talking about tonight. Of course, we're talking about the Public Order Emergency Commission, which just wrapped up its 31 days of hearings. Um, and 
what a wild ride it has been, and I am sure there are some people in the audience who were paying close attention to it, and probably many who were not, but they, uh, I think this is an incredibly important topic, not just for Canadians, although obviously for Canadians, but I think for people around the world who are concerned about what took place in Canada earlier this year with the way, the extraordinary way that the Canadian government decided to deal with the Freedom Convoy protesters in Ottawa, Coots, and other places around Canada. Absolutely insane uh, what unfolded there. And so the Public Order Emergency Commission, as I did cover on New World Next Week a couple of weeks ago, so hopefully my audience is at least aware that, yes, Canada has been holding this commission to look into the invocation of the Emergencies Act, which was technically invoked for the first time there uh, earlier this year, although it is a, uh, I guess, a related to the War Measures Act, which was invoked in World War One, World War II, and during the FLQ crisis in the 1970s. All of that to the side, let's get into this commission itself. Can you guys explain for myself and the benefit of the audience, what is this commission? What is its remit? What kind of ruling is it going to make? And what really are its powers here? Sure. Well, um, the Emergencies Act, uh, when uh, an emergency is declared, uh, as one was uh, February 14th of this year, uh, the act itself requires that an inquiry be held into the uh, into the the uh, circumstances that led to the uh, uh, declaration of emergency and the measures that were taken uh, to deal with the emergency. So it's uh, any government that invokes the act has to be prepared to deal with both a parliamentary, uh, um, I'm not sure what the term is, committee review uh, and uh, public inquiry. And uh, we, uh, during the protests in, in February, um, we had a number of lawyers on the ground. Haddam, Haddam was in Ottawa at that time and we were, um, you know, providing legal advice and, and uh, helping, helping people navigate helping the protesters navigate a very complicated situation. Um, so when the time came uh, for the inquiry, when the inquiry was called, we applied for standing to participate at the inquiry, which means that, um, I mean, it's not exactly a court proceeding and it's not exactly adversarial, like we're not exactly against Canada, but there were, um, I, I, I don't know how to move, about 25 parties. Uh, something like that in total, though, a few no a fewer number that were actually participating uh, on a sort of day-to-day -day basis. Some were just there to make policy recommendations at the end of the day. Right. And so there were a handful of, uh, of civil liberties organizations. We shared our, sta our grant of standing with two other organizations, um, uh, the Democracy Fund, which does work similar to what the JCCF does, and a group called Citizens for Freedom, who had been... Um, providing the same sort of assistance to protesters in Windsor uh, at the border. Um, and so we had one grant of standing that we shared with those other two groups. Uh, there was uh, the, the organizers, the convoy organizers, as they were called, had a grant of standing. So that was uh, Tamara Leach and uh, Tom Marazzo and, and uh, Chris Barber and those people. Uh, the sort of principles that you've seen named and sent to jail repeatedly um, for outrageous periods of time on outrageous terms. Um, but uh, so they had standing. Um, and apart from us, uh, there were uh, a couple of other civil civil liberties organizations that had a grant of standing. And uh, then apart from us, it was the government of Canada there to defend its decision. And uh, 
and a whole bunch of police organizations. And uh, so the chief of police in Ottawa at the time of the protests was uh, a chief slowly um, who came under fire for his handling of the of the protests and wound up uh, resigning in the middle of the protests and being replaced by by a new uh, interim chief. So he had representatives there. The Ontario Provincial Police had representatives there. That's the the uh, police force that uh, polices across the province and in some smaller towns. Uh, the Ottawa Police Service had a had a grant of standing, and the R uh, well the RCMP was re represented by Canada, um, and it, it really uh, about half of the work at the uh, at the commission was uh, different police forces pointing fingers at other police forces for who's who was to blame for this whole big mess, uh, and. Uh, and then outside of that, it was the civil liberties organizations making the arguments about the emergency, uh, the emergency and whether it was legitimate. Uh, but quite a bit of time was chewed up with, uh, you know, Peter slowly pointing his finger at the Ottawa Police Service, the Ottawa Police Service pointing their finger at somebody else, the uh, city councillors in Ottawa pointing their fingers at, you know, somebody else. So it was uh, an interesting mix of people in that way. And uh, uh, it seemed like a lot of the parties were there to serve uh, individual interests or the interests of the organization that they served, where we and the other civil liberties organizations were uh, just there to make the case that the uh, invocation of the act was unlawful. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, it was a, uh, I, I sort of forget where the question started, but uh, hopefully that's a bit of an overview. I, I think it is, absolutely. And uh, I will interject here that I, of course, there is a playlist of uh, all of the JCCF's videos that you were releasing on a daily basis of your cross-examinations. And Adam, I know you were doing a daily sort of daily update uh, of what was taking place at the commission. So, um, Adam, from your perspective, what were some of the highlights or lowlights of the various things that we saw take place at this commission? Uh, one of the uh, one of the big things that stood out to me was just how candid the police uh, witnesses were about what happened and how little they needed the Emergencies Act. So um, one of the things that came out in the very first few weeks of the uh, so I guess to take a step back, the commission kind of moved in a logical process from uh, residents of Ottawa and uh, Ottawa politicians and their complaints to. Uh, the Ottawa police and what they did with uh, the situation and the Ontario Provincial Police eventually towards federal bureaucrats and then right up to the Prime Minister himself. And so pretty early on, the facts on the ground got established. And, uh, you know, I think Rob would probably agree we went into this expecting a big uh, kind of fight against the police officers to establish that they could have done what they did in other ways, but they were all pretty... Uh, they all pretty candidly acknowledged that the emergency powers were useful, but not necessary. Uh, we got a pretty discreet list of things they needed to do with the powers, and that all those things could have been replicated under other existing laws, which uh, matters because the Emergencies Act has a few different tests that have to be met for its justification to be lawful. Uh, the two big ones are that there has to be a threat to the security of Canada, and that it has to rise to the level of a national emergency, meaning it can't be dealt with under any other laws of Canada. So uh, that was kind of our big strategy going in, and that got taken care of in by week three, week four. Uh, and then the, the rest of the time, we were able to focus on the different arguments that the uh, federal uh, officials were putting forward. 
Right. And just to underline that, there was sort of the, the difference between the police um, representatives who were basically, as you say, admitting that these powers were not necessary and the federal officials who were arguing that the emergency powers were necessary. That's basically it. Uh, for the most part, the police uh, really didn't want it invoked. They they didn't need it. Um, at the end of the day, uh, there is some evidence. So there were a few powers that were uh, created um, under the Emergencies Act. Basically, what what in what declaring an emergency does is it allows the federal government to sort of uh, have a, a, a temporary dictatorship where they can uh, where they can pass uh, regulations that uh, that create powers um, that allow them to handle an emergency. So this would be used in a time of war or in you know, in a, I don't know, some major uh, natural disaster, uh, you know, where where it would have, where it would be impractical or, or impossible for, uh, you know, government to proceed as normal and vote on a, a bill to provide relief to somebody or something like that. Um, so the the measures that were put in place under the Emergencies Act, uh, some of the big ones, the the powers that we talked about a lot were, <laughs> strangely enough, uh, this sort of became an inquiry in, uh, into a national towing emergency. Uh, there were, um, and I, I wound up, uh, I mean, half of my cross-examinations focused on tow trucks. I was kind of the tow truck guy at the, uh, at the commission. But um, the point there was that, uh, you know, it just so happened that uh, when the, the protests were sparked by uh, vaccine mandates for truckers who are driving across the border. And, uh, you know, it just so happened when he uh, pissed off a bunch of truckers, he pissed off a bunch of people who suddenly had a bunch of free time, uh, can travel. And when they travel, they drive giant uh, vehicles that are really impossible to move by ordinary you know, ordinary means. Uh, you need a special heavy tow truck to move a, a semi uh, truck. And um, and when the uh, protest got going, uh, there was some difficulty finding uh, towing services. Like uh, some of the towing, the the normal people that uh, that Ottawa used for that they have standing contracts with uh, refused to to tow. Uh, that may have been. You know, there's differing reasons that are offered for that, but probably a big part of it was uh, they're sort of allied with the with the protesters, as well as the fact that uh, a lot of their business, if you're a heavy towing provider, a lot of your business comes from obviously semi trucks and trucking companies. And if the trucking companies are, you know, protesting something, you don't necessarily want to side with the government and tow the trucks away. You might want to uh, say no and, and you know, uh, preserve a business reputation or whatever. Um, so one of the powers that was put in place with the emergencies uh, regulations was the power to basically order tow truck drivers to provide services. And that came along with uh, some provisions that made it easier to um, for them to get paid, uh, they were indemnified for any damage to their trucks and that kind of thing. Uh, they were provided with guarantees of anonymity, um, so uh, they could cover up their, you know, business name with a sticker or something like that. And uh, there are provisions in the emergencies uh, regulations that um, make it so that freedom of information requests wouldn't turn up the information about who provided towing services. Um, all of which. Uh, as it turned out, uh, 
initially it looked like the that power had never been used but it turned out that the power was actually or it seemed to have been used but it was only used as a matter of convenience because the uh, the emer- the tow trucks had already been lined up in Ottawa by the time the Emergencies Act was passed, and or the emergency was declared. Sorry, and um, and uh, and the uh, and so the the tow trucks were already there and ready to go. But there were these extra indemnities and powers and anonymity and stuff that was convenient to offer to them. So uh, so the the act was used to quote unquote compel them to provide services. But they were already there and ready to provide services anyway. They would have towed the trucks with or without the invocation of the Emergencies Act. It just was handy to have indemnities that they could offer. It made it so the 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 bill was paid by the federal government, I guess, or so you know some streamlining of stuff like that. So it was a matter of convenience, not a matter of necessity. Um, and we wound up uh, uh, wound up talking a lot about tow trucks then, and I'm talking a lot about tow trucks now, <laughs> which is probably a little boring. But uh, but that was one of the big powers. One of the other big powers was the power to create an exclusion zone while the uh, police were uh, clearing the protest. So to say you can't come into this area, um, you know, unless you have you're here on official business or whatever, there isn't a general police power to exclude people from public spaces. There are common law powers that police can use and criminal code powers that police can use to keep people out of an area where they're conducting an operation, though. So if they were in the middle of clearing the protests, they could legitimately keep people from entering the protest area. Um, So again, the Emergencies Act created an ability to to declare a a certain area to be off limits to everybody, uh, and that was used, but it it wasn't necessary. There were common law powers that they could have used uh, to create that exclusion zone. Um, So I guess those were two of the powers, uh, and we, you know, we uh, the police were quite open about the fact that uh, that they could have and would have cleared the protests with or without uh, the invocation of the Emergencies Act. And actually, it was one of the one of the. Uh, I'm not sure if you saw Inspector Morris of the uh, OPP. Uh, he's the uh, Ontario Provincial Police's intelligence czar, I guess. Uh, and he was uh, the OPP in general was actually surprisingly. Um, seemed quite competent and pretty level-headed. He had a really um, fair perspective on on who the protesters were. He wasn't, he, he basically puts together, an, uh, I don't know, for lack of a better word, a, an intelligence newsletter that gets circulated around the police agencies in Canada, uh, talking about domestic issues that might become police matters. Um, and he was talking about, uh, you know, the, the perception of the protesters and he was he had quite a fair perception of them. And and surprisingly, I'm not a big uh, fan of, of cops in general. But uh, but if you're going to have a, a, a guy doing intelligence for a police force, you want that guy to be doing intelligence for the police force. He, he really um, painted a fair picture of who the protesters were, didn't fall for the whole terrorist, you know, violent uh you know, extremist kind of narrative. And uh, and it was sort of refreshing to see that that was going on behind the scenes, that somebody, there's a voice of reason somewhere in the police force. 
I'm glad that you provided all that perspective, including the tow truck perspective, because uh, I can imagine some of my listeners going to uh, look at your cross-examination of uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and seeing that you spent most of the time talking about tow trucks. <laughs> Why would you? Well, actually, it turns out this is quite an important issue when it comes to this. Yeah, well, the the other thing that happened in my cross-examination of Trudeau, uh, and Adam gets... Uh, incredible credit for this it was it was a real uh real uh piece of work on his part um we had been having a fight about uh disclosures by the government of canada um they had they they would ordinarily have a right to keep cabinet documents and cabinet uh uh you know uh we wouldn't ordinarily be able to ask them about what went on behind closed doors in cabinet because of a constitutional principle called uh, cabinet confidence um and they they would be able to resist disclosing any cabinet documents if they wanted to but they partially waived that and disclosed uh quite a few documents but they sort of kept what they wanted hidden disclosed they to be fair they did disclose a large number of documents some of which were uh you know helpful to us and didn't make the government look great so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't fully transparent, but it was, it was, I was impressed at least that, you know, they, they went, they re revealed some documents, but anyway, there were um, arguments going on behind the scenes about redactions that Canada had made in its documents. Uh, and the, the night before Trudeau, they were disclosing piles of documents at the very last minute, you know, the night before we'd cross-examine someone, we'd get a thousand documents and, you know, dumped on us that we'd have to review. Um, and they had redacted uh, some, blacked out some areas of the documents that we were disputing. And there was a, a motion to, to unredact certain documents. That was decided on the night before Trudeau's uh, uh, cross-examination. Uh, uh, Justice Rouleau decided uh, uh, that uh, Canada would have to disclose those documents unredacted. Um, and Canada... That was at 10.30 at night. He ordered them disclosed at 11.30 at night. At 2.30 in the morning, we got an email from Canada that uh, uh, contained a bunch of the documents, but they had three documents that they were insisting uh, needed to remain redacted. And they never made an argument as to why. And so in the morning, uh, the commissioner ordered those documents released at 10.30. So that was an hour into Justin Trudeau's cross-examination. And um, I had a cross-examination scripted for him that was entirely different than what I wound up doing. I had him went through the documents that were uh, disclosed that morning and happened to find like just through some great lawyering or great detective work or whatever you want to call it, happened to find a page of one of the uh, notes of one of the prime minister's office staffers uh, that had a, a small redaction of just a couple of words that was marked as irrelevant. And uh, I, so I asked Trudeau about uh, uh, tow trucks and they would be relevant to our discussion today, wouldn't they? And Trudeau uh, wouldn't have had any idea that I had this document and he wouldn't have been able to be prepped for it. We made sure that we got up before lunch so there was no break where he could have been informed of this. So it was a surprise. Uh, and I uh, had him had prepared a side by side comparison of the pages. And I asked him to, to look at the first redaction there, the one marked as irrelevant and read to me what was redacted. And it was Americans, Americans providing tow trucks was the was and providing tow trucks was what had been redacted as irrelevant. So uh so it was a, 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 an exciting cross, uh, you know, uh, 
of the prime minister. We a, a little bit of drama that maybe you wouldn't have caught if you weren't deeply involved in the in the hearings. But it was uh, a great catch by Haddam and a great opportunity to kind of kick uh, Trudeau back on his heels a little bit. Uh, and it's a good thing too that I had to throw my uh, uh, cross examination out because as it turns out, uh, he's not as dumb as he looks. <laughs> so he's, he, uh, I had. Uh, uh, I was surprised to find uh, him so well informed on the matters he was uh, testifying about. It makes me wonder why we get this saccharine, empty, you know, talking points Trudeau all the time. I, I think almost uh, like he's a drama teacher or something. Imagine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I'm glad you pointed that out because I, I, I watched your cross-examination and I didn't really realize, of course, what you were doing is getting him to say that the tow trucks were relevant and then pointing out the redaction says irrelevant. Yeah, of course, obviously. Uh, I, yeah. I feel stupid for not understanding your strategy there, but obviously that's brilliant. And Haddam, hats off to you for finding that and bringing that um, to Rob's attention. Um, Haddam, maybe you can address that issue in general, the sort of the document dumps that were being done at odd hours and um, the the extensive redactions. Obviously, as Rob said, there's a lot of transparency, but not enough transparency. And the way that these documents were being released put undue stress, I can imagine, on the legal counsel. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so all the parties had an ongoing uh, disclosure obligation, which meant if you have a document that you find that's relevant, you have to provide it. And so I guess to one perspective is that Canada was doing that. However, they were dumping hundreds of pages of documents the night before that that witness that the documents would be rele uh, relevant to would testify. So, for example, uh, right before some of the ministers testified, uh, we received uh, several documents with lengthy, lengthy documents uh, with text messages from that minister. And, and it's the kind of thing that would be obviously relevant that would have had to have been obtained back in the summer when we, uh, all this was happening. Uh, so it speaks to either, uh, I, I mean, you can kind of take your pick, right? Is it incompetence? Is it deliberate? What, what the explanation is requires a bit of speculation, I guess. But for one reason or another, the government was releasing these documents only right before uh, the parties would need to make use of those documents. And so you know, day after day of cross-examination, you're, you're limited in your ability to actually then leverage the information you're finding in it. And then that's compounded by the fact that the documents were uh, redacted, sometimes heavily redacted. Uh, there was a, uh, quite an amusing moment on that last day when Trudeau was testifying, unplanned. So, so Rob scraps his cross-examination and does it on that issue of redactions. And then sure enough, uh, the Canadian Constitution Foundation, who goes right after, uh, shows the CSIS's uh, threat assessment, which earlier Trudeau had said everyone should read. He, he advises us to read it for himself. And sure enough, it's just page after page of black square. Uh, so uh, it, it got, I don't know if it, if it picks up on the, on the video, but it got a reaction from the crowd that was there in the room. And it just, it just further put the nail on that point that the, these redactions were being used to hide uh, or at least were hiding the, the substantive information because um, Rob mentioned how the government had uh, somewhat waived cabinet confidence, but there's kind of a, a danger there because they, they it gives them a certain degree of selectivity. So um, they waived it with respect to the information that was coming into cabinet, 
but not with respect to the debates that cabinet was having. Uh, and then they also maintained privilege, uh, solicitor client privilege or, uh, applying to any sort of uh, uh, legal advice they were receiving. So with those kind of selective shrouds still up, there were a number of times where, you know, a document would get to perhaps something important or interesting, and then it'd be hidden behind this cabinet confidence uh, redaction, which from our perspective is is kind of impossible to challenge because you just say, well, no, we were talking about cabinet confidence so no one else gets to see it. Um, and then the, the solicitor client privilege kind of highlighted a similar issue where uh, if, uh, if people were following this live, they would have realized that the week before the, all the federal uh, ministers were testifying, it was coming out that CSIS had found that uh, there was not a threat to the security of Canada, as that's defined in the CSIS Act, and which is also imported into the Emergencies Act. And then on Monday, CSIS testifies, and it turns out that they actually advised the government to invoke the Emergencies Act anyways, despite finding that there, that, that standard wasn't met. And so um, under cross-examination by myself and the CCLA, uh, it, it turns out that they were reassured, basically meaning they received legal advice about a certain way to interpret the acts that uh, means the Emergencies Act has a broader understanding of that term from the CSIS Act. But then when pressed on that legal advice, which would kind of is kind of the linchpin to the whole argument, that's that's hidden by solicitor client privilege. So it does create uh, this this very selective shield that the government can use when uh, when it gets down to brass tacks and the issues at hand. Absolutely infuriating, isn't it? I think with that uh, the selective waiver. If I was doing another one of these inquiries in the future, I think uh, rather than just accepting you know a partial waiver of cabinet confidence at face value, I think it would be really important to hammer down the terms of the waiver because what it really wound up being was we're going to waive cabinet confidence on the things that we choose to waive cabinet confidence on it and, and anything that we don't choose to waive cabinet confidence on uh, you have no way of challenging it so i think if the government wants to uh have its cake and eat it too in terms of transparency uh they really should be required to make a solid commitment to a particular uh, to particular rules of release like how to mention that uh, they waived cabinet confidence with regard to the inputs to cabinet, so what people were telling cabinet. Uh, but we, we, you know, there were no hard and fast rules around that. So, you know, so lots of things were blacked out as cabinet confidence, and we don't know whether they were an input or a discussion or anything else. Some discussions were were released. You know, they released some uh, stuff that wouldn't fall under inputs to cabinet. Um, you know, and it just wound up being, uh, while I don't come down on this on the side that they weren't transparent at all, because, you know, to be fair, they could have just refused to disclose anything. Um, and, you know, we, we, we are in a place where uh, I'm optimistic about the, the results from the commission, and that's partially due to the fact that the government did disclose things. But they get to look more transparent than they actually probably were. Because if you look at that, uh, the redaction uh, that I put to Trudeau, uh, it's obviously intentional. I mean, the words that were blacked out were offering tow trucks. And somebody went and drew a black square over offering tow trucks. 
obviously intentional, and then they marked it irrelevant. Somebody somewhere was intentionally hiding relevant information. Uh, and who knows what the scope of that was? This isn't a normal court process where we would have, you know, we would be able to stop things and and say, wait a minute, let's do a motion to, you know, force them to produce more documents or they haven't produced them on time. Let's hold things up. Um, there's a very strict timetable uh, in at work here. It's a one year uh, period of time that the commission has to work with. And that's a very, very tight uh, timetable. So there's no real way to challenge this stuff. And we didn't even have hard and fast rules on transparency to begin with. So I, I live and learn, I guess. But uh, absolutely. Yeah. The, uh, the the idea of the selective transparency where the, the entity in question, the government in this case, gets to choose what to be transparent about, obviously, I mean, obviously brings with it some very deep questions and problems. And in a way, it would if they simply refuse to disclose anything, that would be more incriminating, at least in the minds of the public. Oh, they won't show anything. But if they show a little bit here and there, then, hey, there's some sort of transparency. It's an interesting, yes, as as you say, I think it, for any future commission to have any real credibility, I think that has to be hammered down before the commission even begins its work. Um, but here we are after the commission has wrapped up its hearings. Um, before we move on to your thoughts about what will come of this. Um, one other thing I think we should stress about these hearings, it did not just involve police officials or government um, uh, ministers. It also involved testimony from some of the Freedom Convoy protesters, some of the people affected by this. Um, do you have any thoughts on some of the testimony you heard during the commission from that perspective? I thought uh, we were incredibly... You couldn't ask for a cleaner set of facts in a situation like this. This was a major event with a ton of people. Uh, it was, uh, you know, it, it, to be fair, it was out of control. You know, the uh, the police failed to do, uh, you know, basic policing to manage uh, the protests. And they could have gone really badly. They, you know, thing, things could have gotten violent. Things could have been destroyed. Um, but in seven weeks of testimony, we got very, all we have in terms of, uh, you know, anything approaching violence are, uh, you know, uh, third-hand anecdotal reports of, oh, my friend had somebody call her names or whatever, or somebody threw something at, at somebody. There was, uh, how to, maybe you can pipe up if I'm missing anything, but I, uh, in terms of violence uh, through the course of the protests all across Canada, there was a seizure of a bunch of guns in Coots, Alberta. Uh, some of the protesters or people at the protest in Coots had a cache of, of weapons. And while they weren't used and, and they were, um, you know, that matter was investigated by the RCMP using normal policing and not the Emergencies Act, and they were arrested under normal uh, laws of Canada. Um, that, you know, I mean, that could have turned into something, who knows what, what they were there for. Um, there was, uh, I guess a, a police officer or a bylaw enforcement officer was sort of surrounded at one point in Ottawa by a bunch of, you know, upset people or whatever. Um, but really, uh, I don't think there was really much else, Adam. Was, uh, we've got anecdotal reports of my friend, you know, told me that her friend, you know, had some terrible comment made at her. But uh, but apart from those two things, 
uh, that's really about as close to violence. Right. As it, it was got. it was microaggressions and honking horns were apparently <laughs> the threat to public order in Canada. Whereas on the other side, if you want to talk about harm to Canadians, you had testimony from people who were literally physically harmed by the officials that were trying to end these protests. Well, and we had uh, testimony from protesters who were arrested in downtown Ottawa. This was February in Ottawa, so minus, you know, God knows what, um, who were arrested and driven out to the outskirts of town and left there with uh, with, a, with no working phone and, and having to walk or, or uh, get themselves to somewhere where they could contact somebody to pick them up. Uh, not... Uh, you know, just just try catch and catch and release sort of thing. Uh, not just to, to add to that, though, the the deal was they don't contact their lawyer and they'll get released without charges and then released on the outskirts of town. Yeah, but uh, I think that the big takeaway from the protesters was that um, they did an amazing. It just so happened that Trudeau pissed off the wrong people who can't who aren't easy to move, but. It also happened that the people that came to the forefront of the protest, the prominent uh, protesters, were quite reasonable people. They were encouraging everybody to be nonviolent. Uh, people were really, I mean, there were so many sort of, uh, you know, touch your heart kind of stories about people who had been, you know, isolated for COVID for two years, who finally were in, a, you know, an environment where, you know, they could interact with people and and people bringing food people you know uh just it, it really uh was there were moments that were really heart-wrenching uh some of the stories of driving to ottawa uh that chris barber told in particular were really uh uh touching you know people just seeing this after two years of government overreach and and you know feeling a spark of hope or whatever and uh, he says dismissively, <laughs> but uh, but you know there were some some real uh, some real uh, great moments and very few violent moments. And if you take a group of that size, any group of that size, a hockey game has more violence. Canada Day has more violence. Uh, you know there were people. You know it was a big party. Uh, but it was a really friendly party, apparently, because in seven weeks of testimony, all the government could offer was a few third hand reports of uh, aggressive comments and uh, and, um, you know, and and uh, and this coots thing and the and the surrounding of the of the bylaw officer. You know, you're, you're exactly right to point that out. Vancouver winning the Stanley Cup had way more violence than this massive protest threat to public order that re requires the evocation of this emergency. Act. Absolute, absolute nonsense. Really quite infuriating. And every Canadian should be offended by what took and place. I think, Deeply offended. I think I um, uh, also, before the commission began, it was reported, and I did, I did report on this, that there were questions about Justice uh, Paul Rouleau's um, impartiality and perhaps his connections to the Liberal Party. Uh, do you have any uh, thoughts on Justice Rouleau and the way that he handled this commission? Well, it's hard to get a read on uh, the commissioner himself because, uh, I mean, he, he does say a few things here and there. I was, I think both of us were uh, very impressed with commission counsel. So the way that the way that the commission works is the commissioner is, is Justice Rouleau, and then there's a team of lawyers that basically work for the commission, and uh, and they're 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 called commission counsel. And their their role is to uh, bring out the evidence that the commissioner needs to um, 
you know, to make his findings. So they would be the first person to examine every most of the witnesses. Uh, and they would, uh, you know, if they if they examine somebody for two hours, then all the other parties would have two hours to split up amongst them to do their own cross examinations. So we would get a few minutes, sometimes 20 minutes, sometimes. Um, but commission counsel uh, was very fair. And uh, in at times like if you watch the commission counsel interviews of the uh, or examinations of the protesters, for example, um, they're you know they're not coming at it from a super biased standpoint. Our behind the scenes interactions with them have been very uh, you know friendly and collegial, and they've and there were a number of times where you know something would come up after we had done our cross examination, and we would write to commission counsel and say, "Can you re-examine on this question?" And they would do it. Um, uh, some of the commission counsel, and I guess I won't name names because I don't want to, uh, you know, put a target on anyone. But some of them were very. Uh, I mean, I think some of them were on side and uh, and were very um, uh, tough. Did some tough examinations of uh, some of the government witnesses, in particular. Um, uh, you can look for some uh, a guy who points a lot with a pen. Did uh, did some great cross examinations. Um, but uh, I thought that commission counsel was different. Counsel had different biases and you could see it come out. You know, there were some of them that were obviously friendly to the government. There were others of them that were, uh, you know, that were much more aggressive or trying to dig out, you know, harder truths. Um, Rouleau, uh, I mean, I had I have nothing negative to say about the guy. I don't I'm not looking at this. uh uh, like it is, uh, I don't see it as a hugely biased uh, uh, hearing so far. We'll see what the results are. But I did notice uh, uh, towards the end uh, in the last week when all of the ministers uh, were about to be cross-examined, um, he, you, you did see a bit of a, uh, you know, he, he sort of was going out of his way to make the ministers comfortable and, and, uh, um, you know, and, and to make sure that, you know, nothing uh, circusy would happen or, you know, that the that the the hearing room would be respectful and that sort of thing. And maybe went a little bit out of his way to, um, he, you know, there's times when he can cut off a line of questioning, for example, and maybe he did that a little sooner than he would do it for some other witnesses. But I I think that there's, uh, you know, a, a kind of an Occam's razor explanation for that, where I think that's just human, you know, the judges are people too. He's got the prime minister showing up. You know, he, he f probably feels some responsibility to make the room, uh, you know, like at least not a super hostile uh, place for them. And, uh, and, you know, I mean, these are, I guess big name people, and and if you were having a party and the prime minister was coming over, you might be a little more concerned about cleaning up before he got there, or something like that, than you would be otherwise. So I'm cautiously optimistic that uh, he's going to deliver a, uh, a you know a, a neutral uh, or you know a, a, a an unbiased uh, assessment of the invocation of the Emergencies Act, but I'm open to being proven wrong. I've been disappointed before and I'll be disappointed again. So, Adam, how about your, your thoughts? Yeah, I, well, one of the good things about this process is that 
to an extent, it almost, I'm not going to say it doesn't matter what his report is because it is going to be influential. It's These things do tend to have a, a big impact uh, in the way the Canadian government works. But all the evidence is out there. Uh, there were over 7,000, actually, I think the last I heard was over 9,000 documents put into evidence. And those are on the website. Anyone can go and read through them themselves. Uh, there's uh, thousands of hours, I'd assume, of video of every day of the inquiry where people can watch uh, the evidence come out as it came out in real time. And so the commissioner will, will make his findings, but the evidence is all there. Anyone who ever wants to show that, no, there actually wasn't, uh, you know, the, these these convoys weren't like what the media said they were. They can pull up the evidence of uh, Inspector Pat Morris that Rob mentioned earlier, and they can say, "Look, go to go to four hour the four hour mark," and you'll see him say, "Well, actually, the media uh, exacerbated the conflict by portraying this as something it wasn't." Uh, they can point to the cops who are saying they didn't need the powers when they uh, they though they may have been helpful. And so all that is there for the public to see. And so I think that's the real power of this kind of a proceeding that um, it's all on the table. You know, I, I'm a believer in cross-examination as a way of getting to the truth. There's a reason Socrates did it. There's a reason courts do it. And here you had the most powerful people, the people at the very heart of this situation, put under the lens of cross-examination by adverse parties like the Justice Center who wanted to show that they didn't need to do what they did. And that's there for everyone to see. So the absolute bottom line here uh, is that the evidence shows that there was no, that, that this did not meet the threshold for the criteria for invoking the Emergencies Act. I would say that uh, the government is advancing an argument that uh, the threshold was met, but they've created a different threshold. Uh, so uh, we had pretty modest goals for ourselves coming into this. We had hoped to put down an evidentiary record that showed that uh, the the provinces and uh, you know the police had the powers that they needed without the invocation of the Emergencies Act. Um, and uh, and just we expected to get a, a finding that you know that that just rubber stamp the invocation. Uh, but we had hoped to have submissions of the Justice Center that established that uh, the threshold wasn't really met. Um, surprisingly, we found ourselves in a place where uh, it really looked like quite obviously the threshold wasn't met. Um, the There is an argument, uh, like we're, we're writing submissions right now, making our argument to the commissioner, uh, you know, that the invocation was unlawful. Uh, there is a counter argument that the government is going to put forward, which says that, you know, the the powers created under the act were used. Um, they were used for convenience, but they were used. Uh, they uh, and they're going to say that uh, that the uh, the way that you look at the definition of threat to the security of Canada in the CSIS Act is different than the way CSIS looks at it. And they can't point to so the the definition of a uh, uh, threat to the security of Canada requires uh, serious violence or the th threats of serious violence and you know they are making uh, among the arguments that they're making are well who knows what would have happened 
a day or two later, if we didn't break it up that day, would it have blown up? Would there have been bombs in the trucks? Would there have been, you know, guns and would somebody have died? So it's, they're talking about, uh, you know, they're sort of trying to redefine the word threat of serious violence as like possibility of serious violence. Uh, we think that it requires more than that. Um, and uh, I think, you know, unfortunately, we've had an erosion of the meaning of the word violence, too, in the last, uh, you know, five years or so, where now, you know, if I call you a jerk, that's that's violence. Uh, so it makes um, it makes it possible for people to make some pretty outrageous arguments without getting laughed out of a room, uh, you know, saying that, uh, uh, you know, feeling uncomfortable is violence or something like that. So and unfortunately, that creep of uh, destruction of uh, uh, the destruction of words uh, to uh, uh, to uh, take a George Orwellism uh, is uh, it's creeping into courtrooms and into inquiries, and it's making it possible to make an argument that you know that that making a bunch of feel, people feel uncomfortable is serious violence. I hope that uh, it's not found to be that. I hope the commissioner sees through that. But uh, but the the government is making an argument. Uh, that we have to counter. So I, I'm optimistic about the results, but uh, but I you know I I wouldn't go so far as to say it's obvious that that we're going to get the finding that we want. It's obvious that we should. But. Yeah. And, and and yet Trudeau is just incensed at China for cracking down on the peaceful protesters in Beijing and and around China. How could they do that? Those monsters. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting double standards. In his testimony on the Friday, he said the idea that we should change public policy in response to protest is worrisome. And then four days later, he said that. Yes, exactly right. I hope people will watch some of that cross-examination where he, again, it's just, it is on the record. As you say, at the very least, whatever comes of this, it is on the record. And people who are interested can go and pursue all of these documents. They can watch the testimonies. Uh, there's a lot of information that has come out of this. Uh, I guess just finally, finally, my last question is, what is what is this commission actually, what, what does it in, ha, have in its power to do? What kind of ruling will come down here? And does it have a power to enforce some sort of decision here? Adam, do you want to take that? I have a final question too. So, uh, so I'll let Adam take that. Sure. Uh, so, I mean, in conducting inquiry, commission has uh, all sorts of powers to summon witnesses and require the production of evidence. Uh, in terms of the final report, it's it's just that it's a report. So it doesn't have a legally binding effect, uh, though these kinds of inquiries happen uh, in the course of the history of Canada's government. And they do generally tend to be taken quite seriously and influence, uh, they, they have their influence. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's this, the force of its impact depends on it changing people's minds. And uh, I had I had a question for you, James. Uh, you watched uh, Trudeau's testimony. What was what was your take on the Trudeau you saw uh, on the stand versus the Trudeau that you see everywhere else? Uh, I, I my sense was that he was clearly more in a sort of legally lawyerly minded um, stance. It seemed to me that he was more approaching this. From the, from the perspective of the way that this is going to look in the terms of this proceedings, which obviously contradicts the way that he was speaking 
um, at the time of the events. And when he denied in Eva Chipiak's, I believe, cross-examination, he denied, uh, she read, and I think quite powerfully so, some of the testimony from some of the people affected um, by the, the mandates that the government was bringing in. He read it to his face and said that when the prime minister calls me a racist, misogynist, whatever, Nazi flag waver for daring to, to stick up for my rights, you know, it, it profoundly affected me. And he pretended to be quite deeply affected by this, but I never called anyone any names, which of course people can see for themselves exactly the types of names that were being invoked and the way he tries to draw distinctions between that. So I think he was trying to put forward a, a more sort of legally, um, something to do with the commission rather than what he would say, I think, to the general public on, the, on, on an evening news broadcast. Does that comport with your sense of his testimony? I, uh, I, I think, like I mentioned maybe in passing earlier, I was surprised that he is not as uh, obtuse as he seems uh, in media interviews and in question period and stuff like that. He's so focused on sound bites uh, and saccharine statements, you know, uh, you know, just, uh, I don't know, just tugging at heartstrings or whatever and trying to mask what's really going on. Uh that uh, I was surprised that uh, he was well informed about the matters that he was testifying about. I, I, it turns out that he's a smarter guy than I gave him credit for. It yeah. doesn't, uh, you know, I, I don't like him any more than I did when uh, when I started the whole thing. But he's he's uh, he's not the he's not quite the person I thought he was. Uh, yeah, I th that's my sense. He is capable of performing in different ways to different crowds, depending on the mm -hmm. context of where he's at. So. Yeah. Um, anyway, I am very much looking forward to this. What is the timeline on this? When will the ruling actually come? It has to be tabled before Parliament on February 20th. That's the, the firm deadline. So we will uh, wait with bated breath in the meantime. I'm sure JCCF will be working on many, many other cases besides in the meantime, so people could keep up with that at jccf.ca. I'll put in that, uh, that playlist of videos uh, that the JCCF put out during the commission. Um, any other specific things that you'd uh, like to link to for, uh, for this interview that people should check out? I would recommend that people check out the, uh, the commission website. Uh, there are a bunch of um, what are called institutional reports that were put up, which are basically like, okay, so you're gonna be cross-examining CSIS here's, uh, to save a bit of time, here's a, a you know, a, a report on how CSIS works or how the prime minister's office works or how the Privy Council works. And uh, some of them are really, uh, you know, quite a great civics lesson. I mean, the, the, the prime minister's office and Privy Council one is really interesting. How cabinet uh, interacts with itself, how CSIS interacts with other intelligence agencies. I, there's lots of uh, great information in there. Um, you know, that goes well beyond, that just is super informative about how our government works. And uh, I found it to be a really great civics lesson just to be involved in this. Uh, you know, you don't, as a lawyer, you don't necessarily think um, all that much about the inner workings of parliament and the Privy Council. You're more dealing with the after the fact stuff in courts. Uh, but this was uh, really eye-opening in a bunch of ways, seeing uh, the, how the sausage gets made in a bunch of uh, different ways uh, was really informative. And I would highly recommend that people not only check out the evidence on the website or watch bits of the hearings, but uh, read those institutional reports on uh, organizations or government entities that they're interested in. 
Right. Adam, anything else you'd like to add? Uh, no, I think we've uh, covered it all. Just uh, if anyone's curious, that's public order emergency commission, uh, .ca. Excellent. All right, we'll leave it there. The links will be in the show notes for this interview for people who are interested. And I hope that we'll be able to have you on perhaps again in the future once the uh, the actual r- report is tabled and we can discuss what came out came of all of this. Anyway, I do appreciate your guys' time tonight and for the work that you've done. I know it's been a crazy several weeks at that commission. So hats off to you for, for putting in that work. Thank you for doing what you do for the Canadians and people all around the world who are interested in freedom. Thanks for having us on. Thank you.